Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm the host of the podcast, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking to Melissa Valentine about her memoir, The Names of All the Flowers. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad that you're here, and I really honor the opportunity to talk about the book and the things that you wrote about. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we could begin today by having us tell you about tell. Tell us about yourself. Sure. Happy to. Um, Yeah, my name is Melissa Valentine. Um, I just published my first book this year, which is really exciting. It's a memoir that we will be talking about today called The Names of All the Flowers. It's sort of um, my life's work pretty much at this point. I've worked on it for, um, I've been saying seven years, but kind of lived in me a long time before that. And it's just, yeah, it's been with me a long time. So it's, it's a big deal to get it out into the world now. And, um, and, and then now explore, you know, my second book. Um, but I, I'm a writer. Um, I'm also an editor. Um, I work in the publishing industry, um, during my, for my day job and I write in my free time I have a creative life on the side. And, um, what else? That's it. I'm pretty much a writer and editor. Um, you know, I'm a partner. Uh, I'm a sister. I'm a daughter. I'm a lot of things. Um, but those are sort of like my, my, uh, who I am to the world. So I'll leave, I'll leave it there. Well, thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know many of those things, uh, come through in your book and, um, one of the questions I always ask my guests is what inspired you to write your book and, I know that is woven throughout the entire book and we'll spend a lot of the podcast sort of unpacking that, but what would the short answer be to what inspired you or or a long answer if you want? Yeah. Well, there's definitely a long answer and I'm sure we'll get to it. Um, But I guess the short answer would be because I was really, really sad. I wrote this book. I was inspired by my own grief, my own sadness, just there was something in me that needed to be worked through. Um, it was grief. It was trauma. It was sadness. All of the things that come with grief, depression, you know, um, this book saw me through a lot of dark times in my life. Um, and in a beautiful way, saw me through and out of those dark times and to the other side of it, which is so beautiful, this, this writing process. Um, but yeah, I mean, first and foremost, I was inspired by, you know, what was happening in my, in my personal, like inner world. I needed to, I needed to ask some questions. I needed some answers and, um, I needed to explore, um, in order for me to heal it, my own grief. Um, and we'll talk about it, but my, my brother was killed when I was 16 and he was 19. And so that trauma happened when I was at a pretty young age and, you know, it has a big impact on your life. It's when it's, when, you, when it happens to you and you're so young, it, 
it kind of dictates um, how you grow up and who you grow into. And it's part of you as you're, as for me, when I was becoming a woman and growing up. So, um, so there was a lot to unpack there and a lot to heal. And so this book was an opening to that healing, I'd say. Um, it would be my short and, answer. <laughs> yeah. And the work of writing a memoir is, it's a personal excavation in so many ways, the layers that you go through, the memories that come up, both the ones that you were intentional about and the ones that you that were unexpected. You say in in the book that you went to Mills and you got an MFA. Did you begin this project there or did you undertake this um, without a mentor, you know, mm-hmm. on your own writing this? I really did begin it there in a serious way. Um, but I started it kind of in pieces and in my mind and um, a little bit on the page years before. I actually took my first nonfiction writing class back when I was an undergrad. So this was my senior year and I was kind of dabbling in fiction and thinking maybe I'll write stories, maybe I'll write a novel. And I think I was sort of avoiding the story in a way. Um, and I finally took a nonfiction class. I, was, I felt connected to the professor. Um, I think we had like similar stories and she had gone to Sarah Lawrence and she was of mixed race. And, um, I was sort of, I felt connected to her. I was like, I want to, I want to learn from her. And, um, it was there that I started. It was the first time that I started telling this story in present tense in, you know, nonfiction as nonfiction. And, uh, so that was kind of the, the first little seed. And then of course I put it down for many years. I didn't, I didn't think too much about it. I, I sort of convinced myself that I wanted to write fiction and, and when I did eventually get my MFA, I had applied in, in to the fiction program. So, um, you know, I still sought out to write a novel and, and probably midway through my first year at Mills, um, it just became clear to me that this story needed to be told in the first person. I needed to tell it as a memoir. And so I sort of like switched majors and, and refocused and studied the craft of nonfiction. And that's where I started seriously writing this book, like thinking about it as a book, writing actual chapters and thinking about structure and thinking like, maybe this could actually be a book. It's interesting how stories tell us how they have to be told. (laughs) Yeah. We can try to escape a story that's within us that is trying to come out, but Mm -hmm. it, it will tell us that we need to, we need to be the writer of that story. Mm-hmm. It sounds yeah. like you resisted that for a while though, that it was, it was a lot to face and, and to commit to really looking yeah. at and writing it. I think I wanted to, I wanted to write about my experience and I wanted to mask it in fiction. I wanted to sort of like loosely have the novel be based on parts of my life. Um, and I didn't, know exactly where to focus. I didn't know exactly what that story was. And as I tried to write stories and tried to get into a novel, it just wasn't, yeah, it wasn't, it just wasn't there. I didn't have a story. And, um, as soon as I started writing the nonfiction, it just kind of poured out and it's exactly right. It did. It told me like, this is, it had energy. It had a different energy to it. Like the feedback I got was different. My professors reacted differently to it. My um, you know, my the other students in my, in my classes and my workshops, they were like, this is it. Like, 
And it was similar to the experience I had under in undergrad when I first started kind of dabbling in nonfiction and trying it out. Um, it just had an energy to it. And it was definitely talking to me. It was definitely saying, write me. <laughs> it sounds like um, your professor at Sarah Lawrence um, gave you some safety to start being as closer to your truth. And then when you thought you could do this story, you wanted that buffer of fiction, just a little mm-hmm. cushion between you and the truth. And then yeah. when you took that away, that once you get to the heart of the story, it's always the truth of the story. And everyone could feel that. It sounds yeah. like when you were at Mills and you're like, well, here's the, here's the true story. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think part of it too was, um, needing, needing some encouragement, just needing some positive feedback because so much of my writing process has been, you know, overcoming self-doubt and being like, who cares? Does this matter? And, you know, that's like a constant kind of character in the room while you're sitting at your desk trying to get the story out. It's constantly going. Um, and so I think like when I heard that feedback from others, like this is good, there's something here especially from, you know, my first professor who then became my mentor. It, 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 it was something I really needed. Um, I think it's so important in the writing process to um, find your people and find um, your cheerleaders, people who believe in the work. It takes so long to write a book and you need, you kind of really need a, a support system. And so in part, it just gave me a little bit of strength to keep going. So did that professor at Sarah Lawrence, was she someone that you, you were able to check in with uh, over the time? You said it was a seven-year process to write it. Did she stay in your life as a mentor? Um, she did, yeah. She's, she's a friend of mine now. Um, so it's, yeah, we, it's been a beautiful, like, evolution of our relationship. And she's been a mentor to me. She um, kind of helped me get my first job after college. And um, when I was ready to um, submit my proposal to agents. She's, she um, offered to introduce me to hers. And so she's been a huge support in this book and in, in my writing life over the years and a, and a good friend. And it's so important, as you say, as a writer, it's, it's such a, a solitary thing. It, it needs to be, to, to mm-hmm. be you and the work and to focus. Um, but then when you emerge from those writing sessions, um, you need to know that that you're going to have someone you can you can have read pages or that you can talk to when things get challenging or just even what I'm hearing from you is does anyone care will this story mm-hmm. matter to anyone besides me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah um, and this story unfortunately has um, a universal truth that does ring true for listeners, it's not just a story of grief, which is something that is part of the universal mm-hmm. condition that people will at some point in their life um, know grief intimately. But mm-hmm. your story about your brother uh, resonates across uh, American history. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell the listeners a bit about mm-hmm. your brother and his struggles and what happened? Yeah, definitely. Um so, as I said, my brother was murdered when he was 19. Um, and that is kind of the center of the story. It, it's 
when you open the book, you read the introduction, you already know what's going to happen. It's not a secret that by the end of the book, he will be dead, you know, and I've heard that feedback and, um, you know, people are like, I, I still wanted to read the book because I was really immersed in this like family and his story and your story. Um, even though I knew what was going to happen at the end. And, um, I guess I did that purposefully. So I framed his story and my family's story and our coming of age story, um, within the context of the school to prison pipeline. And that's sadly, you know, over the years of, you know, reflecting on and, you know, living with the trauma of what had happened to our family. Um, you know, you start looking at history and, um, seeing yourself as a part of it and you start to understand your own life story in in a bigger context. And so, that is the context I ended up putting the story into. And, you know, basically for those who aren't familiar, the school to prison pipeline is basically um, it's a system created by policies, which are influenced by history our racist history um, policies, which, which kind of support the imprisonment of black and brown bodies. And this system is you can look at it really as a funnel almost. It's like the school to prison pipeline it starts in school. It's kids who like my brother, like myself, who went to very um, kind of under-resourced schools, schools who, you know, that didn't have a lot of money that, um, you know, some might call rough, you know, um, we had, we had like a, well, my at the school I, high school I went to was Paideia program was basically the the quote unquote smart kids are tracked into this program and they're the only ones who have any chance to go to college basically and it's like ninety percent of the rest of the school is just kind of um, it's really a subpar education and I had actually both experiences right I was in the Paideia program and then the rest of my um, my classes were kind of like with with all the other students and I could see these two worlds and just see the injustice so clearly. Um, and, and that's really where it starts. So with my brother, um, he was a freshman in high school and he actually experienced a bullying incident. He was the victim of a bullying incident. It was, it was really violent. It was a violent attack by a bunch of boys at his new school. He was a new kid. Our house had actually burned down. We moved to a new neighborhood. And so we had new neighborhood schools. He went to his neighborhood school. Um, my parents thought it was a good school because it was in the hills. And there's this theme theme in the book of kind of good and bad, right? Like what's good? What's really good? Is anything really good? Is anything really safe? Are we ever really protected? Um, so there was this notion of like, we're in the hills now. Everything's going to be good. He's going to be safe. Um, and come to find out it was the opposite. He got, he got beat up really badly um, and it bruised more than just his body. You know, he was sort of, it's the age, what is it, about 14 when you're coming into your manhood, you are trying to find your power in the world. And everywhere you look around, um, your power is being stripped from you. And, um, you know, trying to find yourself as a black man in our society is, you know, an extra layer of difficulty. And so he was trying to fit in at the school. He was met with violence and he, you know, built up this armor and said, you know, I'm going to have power. I'm going to find my power. And he found that power on the streets and he found that power selling drugs and, you know, becoming 
kind of bigger and stronger so that that wouldn't happen to him again. Um, and it was sort of the perfect setup for him to be tracked into the system. Right. Um, this was in the nineties. And so this was under, you know, the three strikes law, which was like kind of, I think made for more of this funneling into the prison industrial complex. You know, it was making it harder, um, to escape these, these, um, long sentences. Um, but so my brother, he was sort of on the outskirts of school, kind of just getting by, not really, um, not really applying himself. And, and because this was his context, right. He was like, I'm going to be powerful. I'm going to find some power in this world. Um, the school is not nurturing me, right. I'm going to find my family and my nurturing somewhere else. I'm going to, I'm going to grow into a strong, powerful man elsewhere. Um, and so he was sort of floating by in, in, in school and, immediately kind of when he turned 18, you know, his first year of actual adulthood, um, he went to prison. And, um, and so it's just so sad to think like you spend the first year of your adult life in prison. Um, and, and then when he was released from prison, um, that's when he got murdered basically about two weeks after his release. So it was like, he was in school sort of on the edges, not really, um, being nurtured properly, um, a school with very few resources and, you know, an institution where the teachers didn't really, um, care because that was sort of, you know, that's, that's the culture. Um, and, and then it was prison and then it was death. And this is exactly kind of the cookie cutter school to prison pipeline. Um, you know, it's supported by policy, supported by, you know, uh, investment or divestment in communities and, and, um, and so that was his outcome. And so that's sort of the historical context. Um, it was very long winded and, and I'm sure we can unpack a lot of that, but um, that's sort of the, un, the historical context for him and, and the story. And throughout the story, when I was reading it, I could feel that your parents had sort of this anticipatory grief that they were raising him differently than they were raising you different standards, different worries, same children, same parents, same household, but different genders. And they were terrified of what society would see about him just by the fact that he was growing into manhood. And I just saw through the through the book, your parents' anticipatory grief and sort of these preemptive things they were trying to do. And, and, Yet the school, it was right in front of the school where he was so brutally beaten and it was beyond bullying. It was a group of them just brutally traumatizing and attacking him in front of the school, um, the very place where he should at least be safe. And they just, he, get, he made it all the way home to you. And it was your family who had to decide, we've got to get him medical care. It, it's you write it so powerfully and so viscerally that we're there with you in that um and you do know like you said from the beginning that your brother this is the story of your brother being shot when he was 19 years old um and yet the whole book, I'm rooting for there to be one moment to turn this story around. And the way you wrote it, 
I, I think that's how your parents lived it. And my sense is that's how you lived it. Let him not be one of the black boys who ends up this way. Is, is that the tension that you were, that you were back in as you were writing it? Yeah. I wanted the reader to be aware as we were, we had this awareness in our bodies. Like this was normal for us that like we have to protect him because we, there's no question in our minds. This is what happens to boys like him. We see it happening around us. And if you are a black person, you are bound to know someone who this is happening to and who the system is not really made for, made to protect. And you have to do everything you can to protect that person. Um, you know, you hear, well, I don't know if you hear it, but I've heard many black parents um, talk about this very treatment of their black sons and like, what is the age when I have to have the conversation with them that, you know, if the police ever pull you over, this is what you do. You follow directions, you put your hands up immediately. You know, you, there's a different treatment and, and that definitely happened in my family. I don't think it was ever, I don't actually know if my parents had that conversation with him. Um, but there was this very subtle, well, it felt subtle, I guess, but I tried to emphasize it in the book. So it was, there was an awareness for the reader that this was happening. Um, but yeah, I mean, my mom sent my brother away to North Carolina for a summer because it was again about like, how do I protect him? You know? And, and I think, you know, maybe it was the wrong thing to do, but it was an act of love for her. It was like, I'm going to send him to the South where, you know, it's the country and he can't get into trouble. And it was always a question of like, how do we, how do we extend his life? How do we make sure he doesn't, you know, get into trouble and, and eventually get killed or into prison? Um, it's a very real fear. And as he was getting kind of deeper into, into that life, um, it was, it came over my whole family. It was sort of like we lived and breathed this fear. Like, when are we going to get that call? Um, is he okay? And, um, you know, we did eventually get that call, but it's a very scary way to live. And having a, a black son, um, that is sadly a part of, you know, parenting. It's a real part of trying to protect your son who is not protected by any of the systems in place. And on page 277, you talk about the messages that your brother had internalized basically at birth. You said when a black boy is born, he quickly learns for he quickly learns the word for himself, bad. When a black boy is a child, he quickly learns a new word for himself, dangerous. When a black boy is a teenager, he quickly learns he is feared. He learns where his place is, in the back of the classroom, in juvenile hall, in prison. And that that comes through in the book, uh, the worry in your parents, um, the things like sending him to North Carolina, maybe living with his aunt and uncle can help him have an opportunity to turn things around, maybe changing schools, maybe going to the group house for a while. Um, did you feel that your dad was in some ways an outsider to how to protect his boys? That's a really great question and um, an interesting way to put it. Um, yeah, I do think so. 
I think that's kind of an interesting layer of our story and being, being mixed race, you know, and having a white parent being black and having a white parent is a complicated, can be a complicated thing. If that white parent doesn't have that same, isn't, isn't acknowledging that system doesn't have awareness has, has too much white privilege to see that there's a different treatment of their child and that they need to do more to protect them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I don't think I really said it in the book. Maybe I showed it a bit. Um, it was my experience. It was what I observed, but yeah, I do think he was a bit of an outsider to that experience. I think, um, I think it was a bit of a blind spot, you know? He thought because he was the dad, he would have more intuitive awareness for how to help. Yeah. And I think also like us being mixed race, I think he thought that we were not the same kind of black, you know, I think like there's a sense of like, you know, light skin privilege or, you know, we're some kind of different, I don't know, we're granted different privileges or we're seen in the world as, you know, racially ambiguous and not black. And I think he was very wrong about that. And that's something that, you know, I've been working to teach him over the years and, you know, it's still a blind spot for him. Um, So, yeah, I think, I think both things. It seemed, and and if I got this wrong, please, please tell me, it seemed in the the school beating that part of why those boys targeted him Mm -hmm. was because of him being mixed race. Mm. Yeah, I think it was part of it. Um, And the other part was just like the turf stuff, you know, it was like we were from North Oakland and this high school was in East Oakland. And that is a big deal when you're in high school and, um, and you kind of like claim these, these divisions, you know, these divisions are so meaningful when you're that age. And that is sort of the power, the only power you have. Um, but yeah, part of it was, was his skin color. And I mean, that's like kind of a, one of the complicated layers in the book. Um, there's a scene when my dad goes to look for him, you know, where he sort of hangs out in the streets and it's a very different area than we live in. And it's becomes, the neighborhood becomes all black. And, you know, there's clearly like guys on the street selling drugs and my dad is just fearlessly. And again, this is sort of part of that blind spot that he has just like fearlessly like, Hey, have you seen my son? And he describes him and, and then the guys are like, Oh yeah. White boy, Chris. So it's like, it's like this whiteness, um, that, you know, distinguishes us as, as mixed, you know, black with a white parent. It, it can be on one hand, this really kind of like endearing thing. It's just like, it's just like a cute nickname, you know, it's with love. And then on the other hand, it can just be used against you and, and try to tear you down and make you not as black, meaning not as important, not as powerful. Just, it's just this, that particular scene, the brutal scene of the beating was, um, it's just kind of this, it's just power. It's just a power play. It's like, I, none of these boys have any power and they're just doing anything they can to take each other down. And, and my brother was the victim there. So yeah, in some ways, in some ways, his, uh, his race played into that moment. Geography is 
really important in the book as well. The idea that there are these boundaries, that there could be safe spaces, that there are definitely dangerous spaces, um, and that your parents both intentionally came to California. Um, your mom from the South, your dad from Pennsylvania, he was a Quaker. Um, did they have this belief, both of them, that California was a safe space that it or that it could be if, if they tried hard enough? Mm, that's a good question. I think so. I think they did. Um, you know, for my dad, maybe a little bit, maybe his experience was a little bit different because he um, was a conscientious objector and he had had a rough time before he kind of found my mom and um, found a career in California. I mean, he was you know, essentially paying his dues to the government for being a conscientious objector and escaping the war. And so he had to do really hard labor um, for very little pay, you know, and he, it wasn't, I don't think it was a very pleasant experience. And um, maybe his view of California uh, was a little tainted by that. I think um, he was kind of working through his own traumas, you know, um, and then he had actually hitchhiked to California and experienced a lot of, uh, I don't know, um, a lot of characters, you know, he, he, it wasn't exactly an easy time for him. And, uh, I think, I think him finding my mom actually was like, now things can be easier for him. Um, I don't know if it was as much geographical as just like, um, my mom healed him in a lot of ways. Um, for my mom though, Yes, I think California represented to her just the total opposite of where she was from, which was the deep south. There were no opportunities. And in the book, I think I call it like the promised land, you know, and it's like almost like an immigrant experience. Like you're working and there's all these jobs in California. And she, she got a full-time job at the post office, which was a great job back then. Benefits, pension. She's able to send money back home. She's able to, you know, build... Um, build up her parents' house and get them a septic tank and a toilet. And, and so for her, it was, it was, it was, it represented a lot of opportunity. Um, and I think for both of them, their coming together was healing for them and, and represented like, now we can start something and, and have something different together, you know, and starting their family, buying their first home. And they were in love. For your mom, um, the opportunities professionally and personally in California were so important. And yet for me, the book shows how she comes alive when she gets to go home every summer and see her people and be with the family. And you describe it so wonderfully. I feel like I'm there with, there's just so many people that, that it's too many for everybody to know everybody's real name. You have all these relatives with these nicknames and there's points in the book where you're wondering to yourself in your child brain, like, is that their real name? And you're being called by your siblings' names because there's just so many children and cousins for the elders to keep track of. It's just, you know, whatever's close enough. Um, and those are the scenes, though, when your mom smiles. And and I, I knew the writer and you did that very intentionally. And I thought this is where this is where her mom in, in some ways can relax, can have that ease and flow um, and fall back into so many of those um, natural things that we only do when we're truly with our family. 
um, Bill, you described the again the geography of the story is is so um, important, and you describe how really beautiful it is and how brutal it is. Um, can you can you explain that for the listeners? Yeah, um, the geography part, or or and, and or how my it, how it, yeah, both how the geography was part of your mom and how how those two are intertwined mm-hmm. in so many ways, both yeah. in her opportunities yeah. and what limited her. Yeah. Well, I guess California probably represented to her like a place of hard work. You know, that's where she was working to keep my family alive and and then to send money back home and and it it was this place of of hard work. You know, it was easier work than she was doing, you know, which was you know, picking cotton and working on a farm in her childhood, but it was still a place of work and, and she worked nights. She worked really hard. And part of me showing that like my mom's face and her smiling and being this different person in Alabama was literally because I felt like my mom was asleep my entire life because she had this night job and I never saw her. And when I did see her, she was really sleepy and, and, she was just tired, you know? And so my parents are, you know, they're working class and they don't, they're not people who have ever left the country still. They don't go on extravagant vacations. And so going to Alabama, going back home for her, that was our vacation every year. That was, that was where we were going to relax and rest. And that was where my mom wasn't going to have to work nights and she was going to be able to sleep and be awake in the daytime. And, And that made her really happy. You could see you know, how tired she was in her life back in California because she would be awake and smiling and we'd get this new version of her, um, back home. And I think, um, and I think there was a sense of pride, you know, her wanting to show off, like I'm doing well, we're doing well, we're able to come here. I'm able to bring my children here. And, and there's also a sense of pride that she has in her roots and she, made a point to share that with us and bring us there um, from the time we were babies so we could have that experience so we could feel like that was our home too. get to know our relatives and our cousins. And she gave that to us. It was such a gift. One of the things you, you do in the book is show us three different sets of siblings. When you have the scenes with your mom in Alabama, she, she's with her sister and um, her relatives. And then, you have back in California, your dad's sister comes to visit, which is completely different energy and experience than when your mom is with her sister. And then you show us um, you in the home, your childhood home with all of your siblings. Would you like to tell us about those three different sibling sets and, and how those how those really shaped you because you experienced all three of those, seeing your, your mom with her sister, your dad with his sister and you navigating all the complexity of, of your sibling relationships. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. They were so different and yes. So, uh, they so informed me. Um, I was an observer, you know, and as a, as the little one in the family, I was the second to youngest and I was the baby for a long time. You know, I was observing all these adults around me. Um, and I was so much smaller than everyone else. And so I was just sort of like observing, observing them. And I don't know, with my mom and her sisters, there were, was always an ease that I loved. And, you know, I observed them in, you know, back home when they're comfortable back in the South, back at, you know, their, their parents home, my grandparents' house. And, 
you know, that's when they're really relaxed and they were just so easy. And I loved the way they talked with each other and called each other girl and just kind of gossiped. And it was just so lovely to overhear them and, and to just like walk in and out of rooms and sort of be held by this or that aunt and, and be like taken into their arms and kind of cooed over. And, and I love that. It was very warm and, and, um, it was sweet. And so that was my experience with my mom's siblings and, um, and then with my dad's siblings, like you brought up in the book, we, we would sort of, well, kind of my, my dad's a bit of a hoarder, you know, uh, every time a relative came to visit, usually it was one of his, his siblings, his sisters usually, and we would have to clean up the house and it was this huge event and we would like get a dumpster and have to clear out the whole house and pretend we were normal. And so <laughs> there was this, like already this tension because they were entering our home and, and I guess when I was observing my mom and her sisters, we would be in someone else's home. And so there was that tension was eased, right? There, that didn't exist there. This time, you know, the roles were reversed. People are coming into our space and we did not share our space. We didn't open our home to anyone. There was really no one allowed in our, in our house. Um, but there was a desire to, you know, appear normal and, and be like, yeah, sure. We can have people over. We can, we know how to make dinner and, and have guests. And, but really it was very awkward and it was a performance. And my dad was sort of part of that performance and he would often sort of ruin it all and be like, oh, we've just been working so hard cleaning and, and, uh, I'm just exhausted. And, and Theolia is exhausted and, and he'd be in a bad mood and he just, he wouldn't sort of like, <laughs> he wouldn't help out at at all with this performance. He would just sort of ruin it all. And then we'd be like ashamed, you know, we were ready to perform and then we would be so ashamed because our secrets out, you know, we have this crazy messy house and we're not normal at all. And then, so that was the environment that, you know, my dad's sisters were entering our home a bit of um, shame. You know, we were definitely interacting with shame everywhere. Um, and it didn't feel good. It's not a good experience. And on top of that, they were, he and his sisters were not as close as my mom and her sisters. They couldn't, they didn't have that easy rapport. My dad's sort of not very easy with anyone and they didn't have that kind of relationship. And it was very strained and it felt difficult. And, and, you know, my dad wasn't leading it. And so they would sort of take the lead and they would be worried about us and kind of impose their judgments on us. It felt like often and it just didn't feel good. And then with my own siblings, I think because we had that like sense of shame, a deep sense of shame about our home and, and also an awareness that it wasn't right that no one could come in and, and we really craved um, connection because we grew up in a house where no one really was allowed in. And it prevented many of us from making friends and having good relationships. Um, I'm grateful for some of my friendships because I wasn't, I was able to like kind of overcome that. And, you know, you know, it didn't stop me from making friends and I'm so, so grateful for that in my life. But some of my siblings didn't have it as easy. And um, I think we saw our own sibling relationship as, um, as just a real safe place and we knew because we had all grown up in that house how starved we were for affection, attention, um, connection, all of those very human needs. And um, so we, we gave it to each other. 
and we had this beautiful bond and we still do. We take care of each other. Um, and there's just this knowing, like we didn't get that when we were kids and we're not going to be like that. And we're not going to be the way that my dad and his siblings are with each other. We're not going to judge each other. We're going to help each other. We're going to support each other. We're going to be honest with each other. Um, so yeah, I guess we, we certainly learned from both sides of the family and created our own kind of safety net with each other. When people write memoir, they sometimes get one of two results with the family. Either the family really gives their blessing after they look at the manuscript of the memoir and they say, yeah, that that's really us, you know. And the other reaction people sometimes get is, relatives walking away from them. Like, I can't believe you would see me that way or write about me that way. I'm, I'm out of here. How did your uh, siblings respond when you told them about this project? And at what point did you um, start letting them in to see what you were writing? Mm-hmm. I let my siblings in pretty early on. Um, just to let them know I was writing a a memoir and I would share little pieces with them every once in a while over the years. And, um, I'd often get back from them. Like I never said that, or I didn't say it like that didn't happen that way. And, and then once I got kind of serious into my craft and started taking the book very seriously, started looking at it as a, looking at it as a book, I stopped wanting that sort of feedback, it just wasn't helpful for my process. So they knew I was writing a book. They were supportive of it. They thought it was cool that I was a writer, that I was trying to do this thing. And who knew, who knew if it was going to work out or not. Um, but they were, they were basically supportive. Um, and then I, I just, you know, at a certain point you stop wanting feedback. You just want to do your thing. You feel good in, in your work and your process and you just want to get it done and you don't need a whole lot of voices in it. They were supportive. Um, I was scared to death to share it with my parents. I just knew it would break their heart. You know, like I said, no one was allowed in our home and we grew up in a way that was super isolated and, um, and there was a lot of shame. And so here I am writing this book and like everybody come in and see and like see exactly what's happening inside. And, you know, that was really scary. And also the way that they were characterized, you know, I tried to tell my truth in the most honest way that I could and, and give everyone, every one of the characters in my book, you know, multi-dimensional character and, you know, show their flaws just as much as their good qualities. I wasn't going to sugarcoat anything. And that was terrifying because obviously my parents aren't perfect. <laughs> um, I and my dad had the hardest time with it. I think, um, I mean, I avoided sharing it with them until the very, very end. It was at the proof stage. So I had a proof, I had a, you know, an uncorrected proof and I showed it to them once it was kind of like in print form. And, and I also knew that I couldn't make that many corrections. Um, so I didn't want, again, like I didn't want too many voices in there. I didn't want anybody telling me I couldn't say this or that. I didn't want anyone telling me I couldn't tell the truth. So I shared it with them, terrified, my dad was so excited to dive into the book, my mom too. And, and then, uh, the next day it's like, you know, he stayed up all night reading it and he is so angry and we've sort of been going through the waves of emotion, which are like pride, anger, <laughs> pride, anger, and just back and forth. Um, you know, he didn't like his character. He didn't, he didn't want to be portrayed in that way. Um, he didn't want so many of his uh, flaws shared with the world. 
Um, I'm sure he, he carries his own guilt about what happened with my brother and, um, you know, didn't like to see some of, some of those truths on the page. I think they were really hard to read probably. So, so he's still having a hard time. My mom immediately came around and, um, you know, went from kind of sadness. She was like, you just wanted me to look like a bad mom. And it broke my heart. I'm like, no, I didn't. That's not, it's not the point, you know? They couldn't see beyond their characters at first. Um, my mom quickly came around and now she's so proud. And when I had my virtual tour, you know, they were both at all my events and were super supportive. And they've been all around bookstores in Oakland telling all the booksellers to buy my book. And, and they're super proud. Um, but my dad still struggles. Um, but he's been big enough and generous enough to be more proud than he is um, upset. It would be, I think, a challenge for anyone to read themselves in a book because they know it's through the eyes of the person telling it. And then layered in is that this is the family's grief told through your grief. And your dad's grief is going to be his his grief, his telling of his grief. Um, one of the things I was thinking about as I read this is that this is the full picture of the moment that you get on the news. This is the, this is the entire um, obituary. You know, we don't write a 300-page biography for an obituary, um, but not many people's worst family moment is a two-minute story on the news. And then as we get to page 276, it happens. He is on the news. Um, and you you describe that. You say, in the evening, Junior is on the news. Dead boy. Dead black boy. Shot. Murder. Homicide. Killer. Killer unknown. Victim. West Oakland. And then it quickly moves on to the weather. The sound bites are devastating. That's my brother, I want to shout but who will hear? Did your parents understand that this book is in many ways speaking to that moment? I think, yeah, my, my mom is there now. She gets it. Um, and my dad is getting there. I think it's just hard for him to see outside of himself and see that, um, this book is not about him. You know, it's about, exactly what you said. It's about that moment. And it's about the life um, of the person in that moment, the life, the humanity that we never get to see. Um, And it's about, and that's what makes it so universal. You know, we, we see these little sound bites, these little news bites all the time. And right now, especially with all the news about Breonna Taylor and, and this huge moment that happened after George Floyd was killed, um, and, and I think as a nation, we're, we're evolving and Black Lives Matter, you know, that kind of, you know, you know, ma- making, bringing it into people's consciousness with that slogan, with that, with that truth, such a beautiful, perfect statement is saying here, people have humanity. And it's just so sad that it needs to be asserted, you know, but yeah, that's what my book is. It's like, there was a human, there was a person, there was a life. This is not just, 
you know, it, it shouldn't be so easy to watch these um, little news bites and just go on with your life. This needs to, we all need to feel responsible. We all need to feel like these people are our family. It needs to matter that much to us. Um, so yeah. And I, I think they're getting there. They can, they're, they're understanding that, but you know, they're also dealing with their own grief still, you know, this year is the 20th year anniversary of my brother's death. And we actually had a memorial on zoom yesterday with my family and, and it was like, it was happening and happening all over again. And so it's like, it's still raw, even though it's been 20 years. And so it's, so it's too personal for them. But they, they do understand the bigger picture. And I think definitely my readers do. Everyone gets it. Um, and I've gotten so much feedback that this book has helped so many people heal, whether or not they've dealt with this particular kind of grief in their lives. I'm glad that you all were gather, able to gather over mm-hmm. Zoom to honor him. It's such an incredibly challenging time to honor lost lives um and and how people are are struggling with that grief on top of grief um and as you said some griefs stay raw it's 20 years and it's raw and i would be bold enough to say that in 20 more years it will be raw um one of the things i was um struck by in the book is really what you just so brilliantly said about the blood the movement Black Lives Matter, that's this book. This was his life. And this is the 19 years. Um, And for Brianna, somewhere there's a biography in in her mother's heart and her family's of 26 years. Uh, The protests, you know, people have been counting down the days since she was um, so senselessly shot. And they were uh, at over 100 and, 90 close to 200 days um that's the 200 days since the um murder it's not the 26 years of the life that mattered um and we need more memoirs like these um that are these eulogies of the life um and yet it's such a gut-wrenching thing to ask of anyone to write it I'm so honored that you did that you um, that you did this for your brother, for yourself, and that you did the incredibly generous thing of publishing it. It is one thing to write the memoir, a, a grueling and beautiful thing to write it, and it is another thing to make the second choice, which is, and now I will let other people, strangers, uh, the world, read this. Um, and it's such an honor. Uh, to us that, that you did that. Um, in the few minutes that we have left, would you like to tell us about what you're working on now? Hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, well, it's really early stages, so there's not too much to share, but, um, I'm definitely at work on my second book. Um, I'm writing a book of essays and, um, yeah, there's not too much more to share than that, but I'm excited about where it's going and, and that'll be my next project. And I should be working on that for the next few months, hopefully. I'm always um, overly ambitious. Um, so maybe it'll take me a year. I don't know. I don't want it to take another 10 years like it did this memoir. 
but yeah, I, I'm still committed to the craft of nonfiction and I'll be exploring different topics and in, in a book of essays. Well, I definitely would like you to come back and talk to us when you have that book ready. I know I'm going to love it. Um, one question I like to ask people is what, what they hope that their book inspires in listeners and readers, what they hope it sparks. Would you like to use the few minutes left to talk about that? Healing. This book is an offering and anything inside of you that needs to heal. We all have something. We all have, you know, some kind of pain we're holding on to, no matter how big or small. And it really has the power, if not addressed, to run our lives and to run our relationships and um, kind of take over our hearts. And so this is like an invitation to heal. Like, what is it inside of you that needs to heal? This was my story. This was my pain that I needed to, to kind of get through and share. I think sharing is so powerful. And, and also get rid of the shame, release shame. Let's get rid of it. Just find beauty and being vulnerable and, you know, being your whole self and healing whatever, whatever pain lives inside of you that needs to come out. So that's what my book is. It's hopefully a, a gift and an invitation for others to, to feel something and whatever that brings up for you, you know, to heal that inside of yourself. I always tape notes up around the microphone and I have taped to each other the word shame and the word empathy and then tape next to it. I have the importance of community as notes about this book. Um, there's also a, another quote from the book that I wrote down um, that you said, perhaps we don't have a word for the grief of surviving, for the cost of staying alive. As you finished this book, did you think of a word for that or is it still ineffable? It's a good question. No, I don't have a good word for that. It's just being alive. It's, it's the trauma of being alive. That's what it is. We've all survived something and we go on each day living and doing all the things that we need to do. It's hard. Life is hard. And um, I think it's just the trauma of being alive. That's what we're living in. As I was reading, I was wondering what inspired the title. Yeah. Uh, the title it means a couple of different things. Um, one, it's an honoring of all of the lives that are lost to either police brutality, police killing, um, or like my brother, people who die on the streets and, and are definitely victims of the system in some way or another, you know? Um, so it's, you know, like we were talking about news bites. We get the big, the big news names. We, we know those names. Um, they're, they live in our minds. They're around us all the time, social media everywhere, but there's so many names we don't know. There's just so many names we don't know. And there's so many families who have lost people. And there's so many, like the image on, on my book cover is like a little street grave. You know, there's so many of these in so many neighborhoods. There's so many lives being lost. And 
the names of all the flowers is just sort of giving some honor to their names, acknowledging them, and also giving them a sense of transcendence. Like we're more than we're more than just news bites. We're more than just um, you know stereotypes. That we're more than labels. We're more than all of those things. We are like. I mean, flowers are such a theme in my book and I love flowers and they're so magical and, and beautiful and otherworldly. And how can, how can the world create something so beautiful? And I want to give kind of, I want, I want our names and I want us, you know, when I say us, I mean black people, I want us to, to be that beautiful. And so it's kind of my wish is like, we can be that beautiful. And it's my proclamation, like we are that beautiful. So the book is kind of rolled up all those, both of those ideas, transcendence, beauty, and honoring. That's a wonderful way to wrap up um, our time today. Um, thank you so much for being on the show today, Melissa Valentine, and telling us about your book, The Names of All the Flowers. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.